Europe and Russia trade blame for leaks on the Nord Stream gas pipelines. NATO calls it sabotage and is warning of a military response. Moscow denies involvement. So could this signal the end of the biggest gas link between Russia and Western Europe? I'm Fully Batibo and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast where we dissect, analyze and help define major global stories. Well, let's bring in our guests now. In London, Leon Isbicki, a natural gas analyst at the research consultancy firm Energy Aspects. In Bern, Cornelia Meyer, an economist and CEO of Meyer Resource. And in Moscow, Vyacheslav Mishenko, an oil and gas expert. Thank you all for being on Inside Story. Leon, in London, let me start with you, if we can. Uh, the intense speculation, of course, is swirling right now as to who is responsible for these apparent attacks on these pipelines. Uh, who, in your view, gains, benefits the most from any disruption to these pipelines? Well, as you said, it's still very much up in the air and speculation on what exactly happened and who, who it benefits. But when it comes to the plausibility of Russia being behind this, there is an obvious gain when it comes to just creating more uncertainty for energy and gas markets in particular. We have seen over the last couple of days, gas prices surged by essentially 20% within a, a, a two-day move. They have come down slightly today. But what this creates is just more uncertainty surrounding Europe's energy security over the course of the winter, and markets react to this. So this just puts more pressure on European policymakers over the course of the next months, really, to try and tackle the domestic pressure that arises from the cost-of-living crisis driven primarily by the surge in energy prices. Right. Vyacheslav, in Moscow, the timing certainly is a bit suspicious. The pipelines were damaged as Norway and Poland uh, were announcing the opening of the Trans-Baltic pipeline. Moscow is pointing the finger of blame in another direction. Who do you think benefits from this disruption? I think there is a kind of group of um, parties, I, I would say group of uh, countries or whatever economists that should think about the changing the global energy map. So that's I, definitely for Russia, it's not comfortable to uh, make this uh, actually uh, pipelines actually exploded. And for Russia, it was actually obvious that it was building for it has been building for for several decades, the routes. And of course, Germany was the one, number one destination. It consumed about 40% of Russian natural gas. It's a big, big uh, market actually for Russia. So the, the dispute was around actually whether to supply on what uh, reason, etc., or start this uh, Nord Stream 2. But definitely for Nord Stream 1, it was working. Uh, definitely Germany benefited and European Union benefited from that. So for Russia, there was no reason actually to, to make this deal. So I think um, that was for exactly for changing the energy map. Okay, for changing the energy map, you say. Let me bring you into the conversation, Cornelia. We've seen, uh, as uh, Leon pointed out, European gas prices rise this week. They've somewhat stabilized now. How much uncertainty is this incident with these pipelines causing in the gas markets? 
it is causing considerable uncertainty. Um, but it's a little bit mitigated by the fact that really, because Russia stopped delivering gas um, through Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 is under sanctions, so there's no gas coming through Nord Stream 2. But because Russia stopped delivering um, gas through Nord Stream 1, um, it, there is, there is, you know, and, and most people, most analysts expected through the winter, this will be, will be, this will be the case. So we have this uncertainty, we have this volatility. But what I'd really like to say, everybody loses. And with this one, also the environment loses because um, analysts, um, you know, environmental analysts say about 300,000 metric tons of, um, of methane are going to be leaked. And, and, and that's, that's not good. That's not good for the environment. So what concerns me most and foremost, I don't know who did it, mm. is when we're starting to play games with critical infrastructure, be it be it pipelines, be it be it nuclear power stations, whoever plays the games, it's really a dangerous game. A dangerous game, a dangerous moment. Leon, could this be could this have an impact, you think, on the pipeline's ability to, when they restart Nord Stream 1, for example, when it restarts? Could it have on its uh, ability an impact on the ability to carry gas through Europe this coming winter? Yeah, well, as, as uh, Cornelia already pointed out, the fact is that, you know, neither Nord Stream 1 nor Nord Stream 2 has been carrying gas mm -hmm. into the European market. Nord Stream 1, not since the beginning of September, and Nord Stream 2 didn't come online after the suspension of the potential commissioning uh, in, in February following the invasion of, of Ukraine. So what you're looking at in terms of the market fundamentals and in terms of what analysts are looking at, the market did not really expect any of those flows to resume. And in the long term, what you're looking at is, you know, this potentially damaging the pipelines to the extent that they can never restart. But most analysts are, are you know, doubtful about any kind of large-scale resumption of flows from Russia into the European market over the coming years anyways, given the political strains between those two blocks. So what you're looking at, you know, more specifically with respect to the gas market and why there has been such an increase in volatility is because it's taking the potential for a restart away. We have also seen Gazprom issuing a, uh, a statement on the same day as the leaks, um, or on the day after the leaks were discovered, um, about a potential halt of Ukrainian transit. So that would just further tighten the European market. And the market tries to cope with this by essentially pricing higher to the extent that it incentivizes more industrials to essentially shut down, to cut off production, and to consequently also uh, to cause a reduction in the demand across the European continent over the course of this winter and over the course of the next years. Right. Vashislav in Moscow, what impact is this all having on Russia? If energy exports to Europe end, it's going to be very costly for Russia, isn't it? Yes, exactly. So it's again, it's another one argument that Russia uh, didn't have any reason actually to stop there, even with uh, current circumstances when there is a dispute um, on, on potential uh, whether to resume or not the, uh, the volumes actually. But the physical ability to send the volumes actually to supply European Union was uh, one of the big advantage for Russia. Now it's gone. Mm. So I mean the, the two so in that case, why, why did Russia stop? Why did Russia stop? And, uh, Sorry to interrupt you. Why in that case, if you say if it's critical for Russia, why did Russia stop yeah. delivering gas through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline? So the logic, yeah, the logic shows this all about sanctions. So it's sanctions and even the turbines, they were sent to Canada for maintenance 
they were sanctioned. It's one of the reasons, actually. There. But again, back to the circumstances and impact on Russian economy. So, of course, for Gazprom as a natural gas monopoly and, and giant, actually, it will be very difficult to go through this, uh, you know, next year, probably with financial side. But again, I would uh, mention that Gazprom actually accumulated uh, quite big profit, actually, from, from current month. So it's tripled, uh, just comparable to the last year. Mm. So I think financially, one year on, we have quite balanced uh, situation. But then uh, it should be calculated and assessed. All right. Cornelia, your thoughts? I mean, could what impact is this going to have on Europe's energy resilience? And do you think that this could mean a permanent closure of this Nord Stream project? Well, I do think it, it means when, when the, the experts seem to say that, that the engineers seem to say that it's unrealistic to see Nord Stream, um, either Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2, um, resume, um, act, uh, resume um, carrying gas. So, so I think we have to assume that that is the case. As, um, as, 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 um, as, 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 as our colleague in London has said, um, you know, um, there is there is talk of shutting the the pipelines through the Ukraine. So for for this winter, this is going to be a tough winter for Europe. Mm -hmm. You see that Germany um, has actually been able to top up its gas storage to 91%. But if we have a harsh winter, that is not enough. And that is going to be bad for the industrial base in Europe. Because if you look at somebody like BASF and all these, 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 these chemical companies, they need a lot of gas. Mm -hmm. and, um, and if they have to shut in, that means that means about 100,000 people um, uh, will be furloughed and the subcontractors as well. Also, we will see less investment. Uh, a lot of the investors I talk to, who are industrial investors, tell me if Europe cannot sort out its energy situation, why would they invest here? Why would they not invest in Asia or in America? Right. Uh, Leon, and I do want to talk about the other options uh, for Europe with you, but Obviously, they're trying to develop uh, alternative energy supplies now, but can they secure their energy infrastructure? Well, so what, what you're looking at fundamentally for Europe, right, is a situation in which the market price is already at such high levels that you're pretty much maximizing supply from every potential source already. You're looking at maximum output from Algeria, given the price incentive, into the Italian and into the Spanish market. You're looking at maximum production from Norway. And more specifically, when it comes to the global picture and to global LNG, you are looking at Europe pricing so high that you are essentially causing demand reductions in other parts of the globe. So, for example, in South Asia and Bangladesh or India, they are taking less LNG simply because those countries are not able to afford buying more cargoes on the spot market mm -hmm. beyond what they have in terms of their long-term long contractual obligations. So this leaves the European market in a situation in which the only remaining lever that it can actually clear is through a reduction in domestic demand. And that is exactly what we have seen where we're pricing you know, above the traditional, what is called the balancing mechanism for the European market, uh, which is the coal to gas fuel switch in the power sector. We're pricing significantly above that to cause those demand reductions from industry and also from the retail sector. And 
so far that seems to have worked. It was also aided by you know, milder, milder temperatures over the course of this year. But we have seen very significant demand reductions in industry across Europe, around 16% uh, uh, year to date. Mm. And that has helped us to gain the storage level um, that we are on track for now at around you know, 93 billion cubic meters in storage. Right. But again, it is a very tightly balanced market. And if you are going to see any further outages, any further supply outages, that means that prices need to rise even further to cause more demand reduction. All right. Well, let's take a look at Russia's options now. As Europe tries to reduce its reliance on Russian oil and gas, Moscow has been courting other markets. The Center for Research and Energy and Clean Air found that China became the biggest buyer of Russian fossil fuels within the first 100 days of the invasion of Ukraine. India's imports jumped 18 percent. Although Russian gas imports to the EU fell by 23 percent, Germany, Italy and the Netherlands remain the biggest buyers. Cornelia, your thoughts about uh, Russia and, and the other options it has? We have to really be very careful in dividing between oil and gas. You're right. absolutely right. Russia has rerouted its oil to India and to China, and we will now see more GCC oil coming up to, to Europe. But when it comes to gas, you know, there is there is one gas pipeline to China. There are some very large uh, fields in, in eastern Siberia, which can still go to China. But, you know, the infrastructure for pipeline gas from the western Siberian fields since the 1970s really goes westward. And you, you can't just put that through the whole continent. Russia mm. is a huge country so spanning 11 time zones. You can't just put that through there. There is the potential of like companies like Novatech who could do LNG. But there again, what comes in there are the technology sanctions, which might harm that potential. So for oil, yes, oil is fungible. Or you find oil, it will find the market. Gas, in many ways, not so much unless mm. it's LNG. You, you have to have the market and then find the gas. So, so gas is a bit more complicated. Vashislav, let me ask you. So alternative buyers for Russia's oil and gas right now include China and India, as we've mentioned. But is, is that enough in terms of the revenue that Moscow needs to power its economy and continue the war? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, we're not talking about just financial side. So we're talking about, as I mentioned, changing the energy map. And for Russia, it's not just only going exports, uh, but actually doing gasification, so-called gasification on the domestic market. So I would uh, just stress that half of Russia, actually even bigger, bigger, bigger part of Russia is not gasified. I mean, there are no pipelines and uh, distribution networks. So that's the way the government and the Gazprom go now. So they're trying to get to the new customers, actually, on the Western. Uh, so Western side is much more developed than Eastern side. So the other one is uh, actually motor fuels. So gas is, has been used as a methane, actually, and the engines and uh, just uh, increasing the demand on that side. But on the export side, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, um, so my colleague uh, was right that China will become bigger, bigger and bigger, uh, uh, actually, um, consumer mm -hmm. of Russian natural gas because of the pipeline constructions. There is just uh, power of Siberia 1, and there is agreement with China to build the power of Siberia 2 going through Mongolian territory. And the other one, actually, the third one, I would say, it's from the Sakhalin Islands. So 
those actually projects will become more and more actually feasible in few years period and India and Pakistan and other countries uh, so like Pakistan flow which is called uh, Pakistan stream I would say uh, has become feasible um, just recently announcing that Pakistan will get Russian gas. All right, Leon, your thoughts about this. What is the outlook for Russia in lining up replacement buyers for its national gas production beyond this winter? And can China and India absorb all that capacity? Yeah, I think my, my fellow panelists have already you know, covered that quite significantly when, when it comes to Cornelia and especially also saying that you know, the majority of that infrastructure when it comes to the giant Western Siberian gas fields is pointing towards Europe. And that is not really divertible supply, which means that the reduction that we have seen in terms of the Russian exports into the European market is also reflected in the actual production declines that Gazprom has been publishing up until now. Those uh, overlap relatively well with the uh, export declines that you've seen into the European market, especially also if you take into consideration the potential offset when it comes to aggregate production uh, number from the increase in production in eastern Siberia, which are connected into the power of Siberia pipeline into the Chinese market. Mm. Now, in the short term and in the medium term, what you're looking at is you know, the main, the main source of, of, you know, potential supply to the Chinese market is the power of Siberia pipeline, which is roughly 38 BCM, so billion cubic meters a year. There is an agreement to construct power of Siberia too, but that is going to take until at least 2027, 2028, if everything goes all right. In the medium term, what this means is that there is a significant potential for just a deadweight loss mm. of supply into the global balance because there is no divertibility between the Western Siberian gas fields and uh, flows into, into the East, essentially. Right. So that is behind this you know, significant tightening of the global gas market and the spikes that we have seen in global gas prices more generally. Okay, a significant tightening of the global gas market, Cornelia. And Leon talked about production declines and also export declines. Do you think Russia's days as an energy superpower are over? Not necessarily. I mean, as, as we said, I mean, you know, sometimes, yes, it may take until 2027 to get the second um, 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 pipeline built, but it can also be faster. When I see how fast pipelines got built between Central Asia and China, that was quite fast. You still have oil and Russia will still be a player in oil. But what you will see is that America will become a lot larger player. And mm -hmm. there is there is um, there's a lot of there's a lot of planned LNG production in America, which is not permitted yet. So if we bring forward the permitting of that, we can see very quickly quite um, large um, um, LNG supplies coming on. When I say very quickly, it will still take five years. But, but, but in terms of building LNG trains and, and getting that going, that is quite quickly. All right. Vacheslav in Moscow, I'll give you the last word. Where do you see this heading? Cornelia talked about America becoming a big player uh, very soon. Where would that leave Moscow and its ambitions. So it's all about the, as I mentioned, that I started with my actually point that it's about the change in the energy map, global energy map. That's that's the the core issue actually. Yes, American volumes with the LNG will come more to European transatlantic actually routes, and European customers will will buy more and more American gas actually by resuming the the LNG plans actually there, but. Russian volumes will be diverted 
to eastern and southern, southern uh, destinations, as I mentioned. And on top of that, as I mentioned, Russia will develop the domestic infrastructure to consume more and more gas volumes. So you don't think Russia's days uh, as an energy superpower are under threat? It's not about that. It's about just, just changing the energy map, as I mentioned. So it's not that uh, all, no, nobody killed, actually, there, I mean, in terms of a superpower. But Russia is thinking about just diversifying the, the energy industries as it is, but not just about keeping this number one or number two position. That's nobody talking about that. Okay, well, thank you very much for a very interesting conversation to all three of you. Leon Izbiki, Cornelia Myers, and Vacheslav Mishchenko. Thank you very much. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Calvin N, Kara Legg, and Abdrahman Warsami. Studio sound was by Aston Goodison. The program was edited by Manish Matai, Lynn Nguyen, and Jody Frias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again on Friday. Thank you.